On May 19, 2012, SDCF hosted a one-on-one conversation between Elizabeth LeCompte and young Jean Lee. This conversation is a lively look at theater making. Hello, I'm SDC Director Kathleen Marshall, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theater Wing. So, um, both of you guys are theater artists who don't follow the traditional map, and uh, you do your own thing, but you've built these institutions to create your work. So, I'm interested in knowing how having the, working within the institution gives you more freedom as artists. Uh, what's the institution? The Sorry? institution of your organization. Ah, gotcha. As opposed to working as a freelance Yeah, I, I only say that because we have yeah. uh, battles all the time <laughs> in our company about being called an institution. Mm-hmm. That certain members of the company uh, have uh, hate that word. And yet, some of our administration really wants to call us an institution because it's a good way to get money. So we're always, you know, not thinking of it as an institution. We really think of it as a company. So I don't know about you. Um, I think of my company as an institution, um, probably because I'm the main person who has to raise money for it. Um, so, uh, uh, um, and I mean. You know, basically the big thing for me is like, I don't, um, I guess I, I um, in, in having my own company, um, I never have to have the experience of somebody telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I guess that would be the main benefit. You know, like I don't get, I mean, now I'm working for um, Hollywood and it's like the opposite of that. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's, I, I would say that's the, that's the, that's the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I, I like people to tell me what to do. I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I actually <clears throat> like to take as the least amount of responsibility <laughs> as I possibly can. It's true. And, and then gradually I grow, it grows to something that I, I know and I can take responsibility for. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like um, I don't like to... Um, I don't like to make a, f- a statement, so I, I'm very. I look around for something outside myself, and so I like people to come forward in some way or things to happen, and then gradually I take responsibility, hmm. but feel always reluctantly. Yeah, I mean, I read in that New Yorker profile on you that you spoke about a house, that uh, thinking of your work as that you're making a house and that at first it's empty and you're going to take your time to fill it in and find the right things to go into it. Um, do you think in your process there's there's a lot of th- that's coming in from the other collaborators before you're coming in to find the way to shape the piece? Uh, well, no, because the shell is there. The thing that it'll contain is there in whole mm-hmm. when I start, and I can't describe what it is, but I know what it. I know what it is. Uh, so I'll have a vision of, of something. Usually, a, usually it's a, either an emotional attachment or mm-hmm. a um, physical idea of how I can see the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't describe it to anyone. If somebody said something, I wouldn't be able to describe it. But I know I can do it. I go, mm-hmm. I can do that. Mm-hmm. Then I start letting stuff in, come in, to fill whatever that idea was. So maybe it's just, maybe I'm just fooling myself that I use that to start. Because I don't, 
think I have anything to say. You know, I don't want to say anything. Mm -hmm. So that's always a difficult thing, I think. I'm a director. I'm not like you're a writer, so of course you want control. I'm not a writer. Mm -hmm. I, I really was a visual artist at first. So, um, so I've come in the back door of my house. <laughs> How about for you, John Yun Jean? Um, well, I actually think I work pretty similarly, you know, in the sense that I start out with. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look this way just so yes, that. Yes, of course. Because um, I can't. Hear yeah, you. exactly. So, <laughs> um, uh, I guess yeah, I start with like a really vague idea, like I want to make a show about Black identity. It's usually like offensively vague um, as an idea, and um, uh, and you know, and I I can find a way to talk about it, but it's usually BS. You know, it's just when yeah. I have to to get money. You know, yeah. since that's so much of what yeah. I do, and um, uh, and um, and and like I I actually relate a lot to what you said about not wanting to take responsibility until you know a certain point, and I I definitely like. I think of you know I think of some directors as being this sort of like mastermind, and they have it all mapped up out in their head, and they're like, I want it to look like this, and like this, and this, and this, and everybody becomes like the puppets who enact that vision. And I've always sort of wished that I could be like that, because then I it would make me feel like more of you know like more legit. But actually, um, but actually I just come in, and you know it's like you know the janitor comes in to empty the garbage can, and I'm like, so what do you think we should do with this movie? You know, like, and it's just because because the uh, um, because I don't you know, most of the time, I'm not the one with the best idea, so I will just get it from whoever I can, yeah. you know. Um, same. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Hmm. What about um, for you? I know that you often do early workshops with actors before you've done much writing or you've done a little writing the starting. Do we talk a little bit about that process and how you build a piece from there? Um, so I, I don't write a script in advance. Um, I, uh, I, um, I will, you know, because I hate writing so much that I will just refuse to do it. So the way that, you know, people ask me, like, how do you get over your writer's block? And the way I do it is I, I book a gig at a venue and it's, the date is set and then we like raise money for it. And, um, and then at a certain point, the marketing people will ask me like, what is the show about? So I make something up, you know? And so then that's how, and then, um, and then we like, you know, book, we rent the rehearsal space, like we can't get that money back. And then we, you know, get all the actors and they're all being paid and they're going to show up that night for our first rehearsal. So that morning I will start writing um, just so that, you know, because I know like if I don't write anything, we'll just be sitting there, you know, and it, that, that level of waste. And, and I'm like grew up with these immigrant parents who grew up in the war. So it's like waste, you know, is sort of what will you know, what, what will get me to write. And so that's how I write. Like, and I will just write whenever I have a rehearsal and then we, and then I just go through the process that way. And so, um, you know, so it's very, very rough. Um, you know, so I'll work that way for a month and then the result will be like my worst nightmare. And then we will present that humiliatingly in front of people and everyone will be like, that sucks. Like, and get, you know, really upset that it's so bad. And people will like, you know, Facebook about like how, you know, how, how can she, how can people give her money when she makes work that's this bad? And, um, and then we do that a few times and then eventually, um, eventually, hopefully we, uh, there's a final production, um, that's not as bad as the workshops. <laughs> Um, <coughs> do you think about the audience when you're creating your work? Yeah, think about the audience now. <laughs> oh, always. I don't know who doesn't. I, mm -hmm. I, always. 
Oh yeah, always. Yeah, it, it it actually gets annoying for my audience members how much I think about the yeah. audience because they they go crazy because during talkbacks, you know, there will be somebody raising their head just saying something outrageous, and I'll just be like riveted, like, oh really, really? And then like other audience members think that I'm gonna make my show based on what this person. But it's like my interest in what they have to say is not coming from the the place of like wanting to please them. It's mm -hmm. like when somebody is voicing their complaints, I'm like, ah, this is how I can screw you even more. Yeah. You know, like now now I know your weaknesses, you know, yeah. so like I'm super into it. I think that's true too, and it's that, it's that uh, the fallacy about that you ha they talk, are, are you interested in your audiences? You can be just as interested. A lot of times when we're working, I'm, I'm suddenly going, oh, the audience is going to see this and it's going to make them really mad, and that's exciting, and that pr mm -hmm. propels you to a different place. But that's just as important as, oh, are they going to like this? Mm -hmm. But it's always there. Both sides mm -hmm. are always there. Well, then that brings me to the port of con controversy, which happens. There's a lot of been controversy around both of the projects that both of you created. Um, <coughs> Route Route One Nine, uh, that piece. Route. Route yes, and uh, the shipment. So, can you guys talk a little bit about controversy in your work, or about uh, looking at race? Because um, that in that case, in, in those two projects, that's okay. one place where it really came up. Well. Um, I guess I, uh, I, I still still speak about that piece in the same way, which means that uh, somehow there's some consistency in my life. Um, I came to that piece because I was working from two tracks. I was working with um, with comedy and uh, from records, enacting, reenacting, and enacting comedy records to try to figure out about timing, comedy timing, and performance. I was working on ways of performing that weren't traditional acting. Um, and so I had these collections of records, and I had this beautiful record of this comedian, Pigmeat Markham. And so uh, I was working with that, but I was also working with, at the same time I was working with soap operas and that kind of performance. Mm -hmm. So I kind of came to those two things that way, it wasn't, it, it didn't, I didn't realize it was about race until we decided to call uh, uptown Harlem for, to order chicken and try to get them to deliver it downtown to this place that was so isolated from the uptown and the downtown. I think that's when I realized that I'd made two worlds, this soap, soap opera world with our town and this Pigmeat Markham world and put the two next to each other. And they were so far apart in such a beautiful way, hmm. next both, both beautiful in their own ways. And, and the connecting of Kate, uh, the connector, making these live phone calls to somehow put something in the middle of it to make that real, that hmm. distance real. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really thinking of, I was just thinking of what New York was like for me. Mm -hmm. I guess. It wasn't a, a thing. It wasn't a statement about, it might have been a statement about art forms. Mm -hmm. Some of it was I loved the colors and the look. I, it wasn't like that. I didn't have a theme that I, I wanted to um, expose mm -hmm. uh, uh, racism in theater or, or, mm -hmm. or I wanted to, uh, uh, I didn't have an idea that was articulated with words. I had a feeling about the world at the time, and I tried to put that on the stage. 
And how about for you in terms of the shipment or other things that you've explored in terms of race? Um, well, for the shipment, the, um, the, the early workshops that we did ended up being really offensive and horrible. Um, uh, it was originally a hip-hop show with hip-hop dancers, mm -hmm. and... Um, uh, and it was just, it, it totally had the sort of opposite reaction from what we wanted, where, uh, you know, the, the, the black people were really angry and walking out and the white people were just delighted. Like I'd never seen white people like so delighted by anything I've ever done. Um, and, uh, so, so that was bad. And, um, so we, uh, so, so I, I got rid of the hip hop thing and I recast the show with actors and I basically just had them come in and, you know, like, I really relate to what Liz says about like, you don't start with something you want to say. Mm -hmm. I never feel like I have something I want to say. I definitely didn't have anything I wanted to say about black identity, you know, um, and, uh, and so I just asked them you know, like, well, what, what kind of show do you want to be in? You know, because they were just complaining. Like, you know, as actors, their big complaint was that all they ever get, uh, all they ever audition for is, like, you know, gang gangbangers and crack whores and, you know, just over and over again. And um, <clears throat> and they wanted to play different roles. So we just talked a lot about that. And I asked them, you know, like, what kind of show do you want to be in? And I was sort of like a, uh, when I think about that show, I think of myself as being like a personal chef you know, working for, like, really picky rich people, you know? They're like, well, I like cilantro, you know? Like, and I like chicken, but I don't like bell pepper, you know? And so it was kind of... Um, and then and then preparing it over and over and having them tell you if it fits. And that's that was sort of the, the process of creating that show. Hmm. Uh, how about gender? How has gender... Has it been an issue at all for either of you in your work? It's just, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm sure it has, but I, I don't know how. I wouldn't know how to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I instinctively, uh, when you talk about institution, I instinctively tried to form a, a situation for myself where <clears throat> I would be safe. Mm -hmm. uh, and anything I did, I could do anything. And I wouldn't have to come up against certain things that I, I knew at the time uh, women had to come up against. Right. So... Um, I think that's what the institution or the company that we formed is for me. Yeah, I, I found a place, I bought it, mm -hmm. I uh, made a company of people so that I somehow, uh, that, and I'm the only director, but I'm not the artistic director because the company is the artistic director, mm -hmm. but I'm the only director, so I'm, I'm safe there and I haven't had to come up against uh, what is traditionally called gender issues for women. Uh, normally, uh, where I find it now is in retrospect, looking at my career and realizing that a lot of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing and still doing it is because I'm a woman. <clears throat> and no one ever asked me to direct anything else. So I might have, if they'd asked me to direct, uh, you know, Follies back in the 70s mm -hmm. or Promises, Promises, I probably would have said yes. Mm -hmm. They didn't. So, <laughs> so I was working in a way that was that I loved and was comfortable for me. I was never tempted by anything. Um, I, I I've had basically the same experience, you know. But and but I feel like for my part, so much of it is just the luck 
of having ended up in downtown theater because I came I came from like a background of studying Shakespeare and the only experimental playwrights I knew of were um, Beckett and Ionesco. You know, when I moved to New York, I I, I would call um, I remember like Richard Foreman. I referred to him all the time as George Foreman. Um, <laughs> people would be like, it's Richard. Um, and. Uh, so, uh, so you know, I and then I happened to stumble into experimental theater because I was um, living in New Haven, uh, where my ex-husband was um, going to law school, and I I read a play by each of the Yale School of Drama playwriting professors, and the one that I liked the best was by this experimental playwright named Jeffrey Jones, yeah. and. Um, and so I met with him, and he just gave me this list of names, you know, the Worcester Group, Richard Maxwell, Richard Foreman, Mac Wellman, and I just took that list and, um, and moved to New York with it. And I, you know, and I think, like, every single day I basically feel grateful for having ended up in downtown theater because it's a place where, you know, like, I worked with you, like, it's a place where, like, women and people of color are actually, like, that's a good thing, mm-hmm. you know, like, that's, that's actually going to help you get funding, you know, so <laughs> it's like, so it was, it was really, you know, and there's like, and nobody's making any money, so it's like, there's no... People are there because they like the work. Exactly. Yeah. And when they start to get other work, they go and new people come in, mm-hmm. so there's also a constant, it's not like Europe where people that get involved in the theater, they get a good salary and they stay in institutions and the institutions kind of atrophy. Right. But here there's a constant turnover of people that go on to move on and then come back and move on again. Mm -hmm. It's a very healthy way to work as an artist. Yeah. Yeah, I think that new energy comes in as a result, but also when the people go away and then come back, there's Mm -hmm. a whole new set of skills or tools that they're bringing into the conversation. Yeah. Unfortunately, and, I don't go away and come back, so my skills are the same. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, like I, I, I worked with a lot of women. Like, it's a very weird world. I think most of the world doesn't work the way that my, like, our world yeah. works. Like, it's not, if you go, I mean, if we, I think if, if I were to direct an uptown show, I would learn very quickly you know, like what, what things are like in the rest of the world. So I feel very sheltered. And whenever I feel tempted to like, you know, sometimes there's like this little ego thing where it's like, oh, well, I'm such a badass that like nobody dares. But it's actually, if I just stepped one foot outside this world, I would, people would dare. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that for, I I started my own company because I was 21 and no one was going to give me directing work. And we started a company of directors and then we started here and and to make a place where people could have the freedom to do what they want to do and that it, they, they can follow the path that they're interested in following without being censored or guided into a different direction. Um, I think that is a freedom, but I think that freedom is also there because of what you both alluded to about that there isn't as much financial risk in a sense and that when you start to go into these places where there is these the financial risk that of the 500 or 1,000 mm-hmm. seat theater, then there start to be a different set of pressures. But you guys make your work in this downtown context, but then the work tours to those kind of venues. Do you feel when you go to those venues that there's a change in both the audience that's viewing the work and their expectations or in the organizations that you're having to deal with when you take your work into that context? Well, I don't, uh, we don't, I don't go, I don't perform in theaters that are any more than 300 people ever. So, so that limits it. If somebody Mm -hmm. comes and says, you know, I'll give you uh, $2 million to play in this 1,000-seat theater, I have to say no because mm-hmm. 
Please, someone do that so I can check and see. <laughs> Don't ever come back to me and say that I said that. In <laughs> um, but but I, I, I like the intimacy, and I work from um, so much from um, film, film images and images that are s small, delicate, and large together. And... I'm, I'm not, I don't make big tableaus. I'm not that interested in that. I love the small, smallest gesture and the biggest, both together, in a piece. So, so that's limited us. So when we, we go out on tour, we usually tour to places that play to no more than 300, and I think 350 was the tops we ever played for mm -hmm. in, in any of our, that's the biggest house. If it's a bigger house, we make them, make it smaller. Right for us to make a box in, within the theater, mm -hmm. or, we, or we work on the stage. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a great deal of difference. There is a difference in the audience, because, of course, the Europeans are very different. They have a very different take on commercial, on America and commercial theater. I mean, I've been mm -hmm. through a lot of things with them and learned a lot mm -hmm. from going to Europe and, and to uh, Asia. And for you? Actually, I want to test something because because when I was trying to think of like ways in which I experience like gender difference, there was one example that I thought of, but I don't know if it's a gender thing. It might just be me. Mm. But okay, so when I started to tour, like you know, like I know all these like you know hotshot guys who tour with their own companies, and they yeah. all told me like, oh man, like when you tour Europe, it's like you go and they treat you like you're a rock star, like you're a king, like it's amazing, you're gonna love it. Okay, and I went, and that and that and that did not. That that's not that didn't happen okay. to me. I agree with you. Totally. And I didn't realize that's one of the things looking back. I never realized that. Uh -huh. But then I found that a lot of people in my company, the men who were in my company, I would go like for instance, I would never be introduced to the uh, even the presenter. So I didn't know who the presenter was, right? But then there would be I'd have a big cast and a lot of them had their own companies and things like that. And I'd go to a cafe and They'd be there with the presenters, and they'd be all talking. I'd be across the way drinking my over there. They were booking, and they were going out, and they, it was the club. It was the golf club. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That happened all the time. That's interesting. Okay, all right. That's Germany. Okay, that makes me feel better. Especially actually. in Germany. Yeah, mm -hmm. the Germans do not. They would look right past me, you know, always. But I was so kind of innocent about protected because my company was was so supportive of me and my power was so secure and I felt mm. always and still do feel very very needed and comfortable in that place that it wasn't I never remember being um, upset about it or angry I just was curious mm -hmm. why <laughs> that, that would be happening I look back now and realize that you know, if that happens now, I'm I'm so much more aware of it. Right. I was just see, but I, you know, but I, I'm in a way like this is one thing where I feel like I, I don't think it's a bad thing that doesn't happen to me when I go to Europe because I think that wouldn't be good for me. I don't know. All <laughs> I know is I'm still working, and a lot of the people right. who got all of that are either doing the same work that they did then, or they're not working anymore. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know, that reminds me of something. Um, you know, Tim Etchells? Yes. So uh, I was having a conversation with him, and, you know, he, he has, he's had a company since the 80s, you know, yes. and I, you know, I was kind of struggling, and I, and I asked him, like, okay, well, how, how do I get to become you? And he was like, oh, it's really easy. He's like, all you have to do is just keep making work, yes. and everybody else will just drop away. <laughs> 
<laughs> because it's like that's all you have to do is survive. Yeah. That's it. Like you don't even have to be yeah. good. You know, like you just you just keep doing you it and you right. don't go away. That's another thing though. Is sometimes you feel like now, at least for me, because I'm quite far along in that area. Uh, sometimes I feel like, oh, maybe that's the only reason is that I survived. You, you know, you can't help it. You just go when you see so many people drop by the wayside. You think. Maybe it's just about keeping work. But that's but that's going. huge. You know, yeah. it's not even a just. Like I feel like yeah. that's the ultimate. You I know? Hope so. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. The ants that keep going. Right. <laughs> well, because my experience has been every single year I want to quit, and I'm at the beginning. Yeah, you know, too. so I so you. I, every single and everyone laughs. They still laugh, but every piece was the last one. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that this one is because. There are people be angry with me because mm -hmm. this is my last piece too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue to failure. So, how do you both think about failure? <laughs> Thanks, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> uh, take it failure. away. Failure. I mean, I feel like failure. I, you know, one of the really great things about having a completely humiliating and miserable childhood is, uh, <laughs> is, is that, that, you know, just full of nonstop rejection is that, like, I have this incredibly high tolerance for humiliation. And I feel like as an artist, that has helped me more than anything else. You know, like, I, um, I'm able to fail really spectacularly. I'm able to look really bad in front of people I'm supposed to look good in front of. Like I'm able to, you know, um, I'm able to, you know, be humiliated in front of the people I, I work with. And, um, and I feel like that is why I'm able to make the sort of work that I make is because I'm able to fail over and over again. And there's not that level of fear of it. I mean, I don't love it. Like, I, it's not a good experience, but I'm really used to it now. So it's, uh, so I feel like that's kind of, I feel like failure is my secret weapon, like the ability to fail. Yeah, I, I have a, a similar thing. I'm not, I'm not sure where it comes from. I, I think it might just be inherently a personality thing that I I even remember as a child, I, I always thought I was terrific. <laughs> and I look back and I wasn't. I, I, I read that. Were you really a cheerleader? Yes. I oh, my gosh. I was gosh. a cheerleader and I was the captain of the squad. I did all the... I did everything. I was... No, mind you, I was kicked off the squad for swearing. <laughs> it was the 50s. <laughs> But, but you know what I'm saying, I, 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 my, and my parents, I had no, they had no interest in me whatsoever. Uh, they never came to see any of my work. Finally, when I'd been working for like 15 or 20 years, I think I remember my mother coming to One Piece and going home. I, I, I never talked to them about it. There was no connection. So it was something in my personality that, um, that I agree with you, that I, I, any failure, I was always thinking, Oh, it'll work this way. I was always, because uh, I knew it was a failure. I go, it's a failure, but mm -hmm. I thought everybody could see in the failure how beautiful it was. Mm -hmm. like, oh, shit. I was looking at my own shit and thinking, this is fantastic. <laughs> and I still do that a little bit. And I see people, you know, their faces when I've done something, and I know it isn't working, but I can see where it's going. And, and I look at their faces, and they're like, oh, God, she's really... 
and I get a little annoyed. You know, mm-hmm. I think they don't see it. They don't see it. Mm. But mm. That, I think that's a personality thing. I think it's genetic. Mm. And I don't know whose genes I got it from because neither am I. Yeah, I think you're right, actually, because there's plenty of people who have had humiliating childhoods and they want to avoid humiliation for yeah. the rest of their lives. So maybe it is just inherent. I don't know. Well, you talked before about people uh, making the same piece over and over again and that that becomes tiresome and then we're glad that they're not around anymore. Well, I don't think but, that's true. That, I don't think uh, that's tiresome. Uh-huh. I just think that that's, um, it becomes a it becomes a style that you go to see where there's no, uh-huh. you go to see it as a kind for beauty, for pure beauty, not, mm-hmm. not for something that is going to uh, give you something new. Mm-hmm. Like I like to go to the theater to where there's something, ah, I can steal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I can't do that with, I go, for instance, I go to see everything that, that, that I can that, that Robert Wilson does because he's a genius, he's fantastic, but I know what he's going to do now and I love it. So mm-hmm. I go for that. It's like listening to over and over again to the same song. Mm-hmm. But the other is like you turn, you zip down the radio or you're, not your iPod, you the radio, because otherwise you just listen to what you want to listen to. And you, f- you hear something and, and it knocks you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that means you're still, you're still changing. You're still moving. Yeah, so way. how do you keep changing in your work? Because I think both of you, there's huge, in your projects from piece to piece, you can see completely different things happening and different um, ways of working being pursued. So how do you keep doing that? How do you keep exploring the people that. around me people that come into the company it's the same thing with you I ask them what 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 should I do with this mm-hmm. what's wrong they feed it back to me because mm-hmm. again I, I didn't go into it with an idea of what I wanted to do so they have to give me it and that's not true with with somebody like again Wilson I use him as an example of something mm-hmm. who has uh, an assistant who he says I, I'll do this this and this and the assistant goes and does it very beautifully I can't do that. I have always to ask who, who I'm working with, is that working for you? Mm-hmm. Here's what I need, what are we doing? It's always a conversation with someone I don't know and, and trying to find out who that person is. And in trying to find out who the person is, you get new impulses. Mm-hmm. How about for you, young Jean? Um, definitely, definitely the same. Like, so for example, like I'm working with, um, like I, the, the, there's an artistic associate of my company, Morgan Gould, and she's like a total genius. Like she's so much better than I am at everything. And so she's really changed the way that I make shows. Like the past few shows I've made, um, like have been really different because she's worked on them and they'll could change after she leaves. So I'm definitely like super influenced by like the cast members and like who I collaborate with. Um, but like I've also developed this masochistic thing which is uh, not actually it's just through necessity because when I was first I think I told you this story maybe like when I first started um, trying to be a playwright you know I had no experience and um, and I just wanted to make shows like Liz Liz's shows mm-hmm. and so uh, and I was just like you know like I want to just make something good like what the Worcester group makes and the and and having that be a starting point for trying to be an artist is really really terrible because it just ends up 
it, you can't just, you know, you can't just do that. Like I can't just. You sit. could just copy it. <laughs> well, right, right, right. But then that, but then, but then it's like a bad imitation. You know what I mean? Like it just was not. Like it, it was, it was not, it was not working for me. And so, uh, so I called up Mac Wellman, and I was like, I don't think I can be a playwright. Like I can't write, and everything that I write is so terrible and like just derivative of the Worcester Group. And he said, Well, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be like, if you're gonna make something bad, if you're if you're writing badly, then just like really go all out and just write the worst thing you could possibly think of. So I was like. Okay, what would the Worcester Group never make? You know, and um, and uh, this is exactly and I, how I would have attacked this problem. Yeah, and I and I came up with this idea of uh, a historical drama about the English Romantic poets, like sitting in a cottage and talking about life and art, and. Um, so I so I wrote that play, and so and and that enabled me to get over my writer's yeah. block, you know, because it took the pressure off to make something amazing. Because to me, what's amazing is what other people have done, you yeah. know. So I still have that same thing. Um, I see something else that that's what's is exciting for me. That if that's amazing, I go through that, and I, I I do the same thing. I go through how do I do that, and then I reject it totally. Yeah. Way, and then somehow I come around to some meeting place. Of, but it's always a surprise that way, and that's, I think that's why I'm still excited about working. I sometimes I walk into the space. The other day I put my head down on the, I don't know, I was trying to clear my ears or something. And <laughs> I put my head down and I looked up at the space and I went, did I do that? Mm. And it was, it was a, scary, and I thought, oh, I don't know where I'm going. I did that. So that's that makes you keep going. Mm-hmm. That curiosity. Um, you both uh, use the word experimental in describing your companies. Um, no, I do, don't take that away. You don't? I only do that to, because what, how are you going to make money? You have to right. do something. Am I going to say I'm, you know, I'm writing uh, costume dramas? or I'm, <laughs> I don't know. Right. Experimental is something that was kind of coined in the 60s, mm-hmm. and it, there is no, I'm an artist, you know, and I use experimental to, to apply for grants, or I use experimental because if I'm at a cocktail party, it'll get rid of somebody who I don't want to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> so what does the word mean to you? Oh my god. Okay, so I yeah, so I got I got called I got called for jury duty, and um, and I and I heard a story about how um, you know somebody I knew got out of jury duty and 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 you know and he wanted to be on the jury and he asked them like why did you reject me and they said your handwriting we didn't like your handwriting and I and I asked him what's his handwriting like and it was like these big block letters like very meticulous and so like on my form and then I talked to my dramaturg and I was like what do I do like I have to be in rehearsal I can't do jury duty and he was like just use the word experimental like in the in the thing you know on whatever you know just experimental playwright and write it really big so like on my form I just wrote like young like meticulous black block letters experimental playwright and I went and they would not even like come near yeah they just didn't I mean at a certain point I was in the room and I started getting kind of interested and I was like can I ask a question they were like no <laughs> Yeah, so it's useful in that way also. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I don't really know. 
I don't know what it means. I mean, I think I'm a little bit more probably, um, uh, I'm probably a little bit happier than Liz is when somebody applies it to me just because I, for so long, I, you know, nerdily dreamed of being an experimental playwright. So for me, it's like this, you know, it's this uh, desirable label that I'm excited to have placed on me. Well, then I'm going to take it back on. <laughs> Experimental artist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about the performers? So, how do you push your performers to the performance that you want to see? Hmm. Uh, I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know how I do that. I, I, I don't know. I think, um, I think that's. Um, I think in the work, I'm trying to find something that, that when I look at it, it's open. It's open and clear. And the person or the, I'm there. It's like when I look in the mirror, sometimes I go, oh, that's me. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I go, and I try to fix things. And if I don't feel I have to fix anything, I just look in the mirror and it's clear. Uh, I see the piece. I see the performers clear. So I try to get them as clear and open as possible for me. And that, and in a place where I, that they look strong and happy and joyous and want to show themselves without fear. Uh, it's very difficult uh, because I have to have no fear too at the same time, and I have lots of fear all the time. So I think that's a bit, something that's very difficult to articulate uh, directly. I mean, I can say, oh, I make them practice it a hundred times, but <laughs> I don't do that. They, they do that. I have um, really, uh, I mean, people tell me a lot that I have no poker face. You know, so yeah. it's like everything that I'm feeling, um, everything I'm feeling, like people can see it on my face. And I have also really, really extreme reactions to things. Yeah. So when I'm in the room, like if something is, I don't like something, I get so miserable and it's so palpable. <laughs> and if something is good, I get so deliriously joyful and that shows as well. And I think it creates this dynamic in the room where we're all, like the actors always know, sort of, and it, we're all kind of working together. Mm -hmm. to you know to to make things to make things good mm -hmm. I have the same thing but a lot of times <coughs> my, uh, the performers I'm working with uh, it's a liability sometimes because I I'm not patient and it's something that I'm beginning to try to learn you know by by watching other people work in situations like mine um, that I, I have no patience that when it's not there and there's something that's that's alive that's not there or that's cramped or that's something that's I I don't want to feel in the room. I I get such a look and it takes everybody down. I call it the black hole of despair. Yeah, so you know, yeah, yeah. It's really terrible when that happens. I hate that feeling. And you then know? they say to me, Well, you're looking like that. <laughs> I don't realize I am, you know. Mm. So I'm trying to I'm learning the last year, two years, that's all. I'm trying to learn to be more patient because when I do that, it shuts down so much sometimes. 
I'm trying to breathe and I'm trying to look at it and think, it's not me, because sometimes I feel it's me. And I, I'm so involved in who the performers are. They, are. they feel like they are me. And that's a good thing. But when they do something that I don't want them to do, it's, it's a difficult relationship. It's really difficult. But it's also, when things are right, it's the most incredible feeling in the world. Mm -hmm. you know, and It's doing we're all together, and it's everybody, we're all one thing. It's mm -hmm. fantastic. And you guys both go to every performance, and I know in, in your process that things often are changing between performances. And I know, Liz, sometimes you're talking in their ears during shows. All the time. In fact, mm -hmm. I, I actually, every performance I talk with every, I have a different line to every single performer, and I tell them exactly what to do in every show. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about... Through the whole show? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're Don't kidding. Don't steal that. No. You're not kidding? No. I'm kidding. Oh, you God. Do talk, you do talk in your ears, No? <laughs> one show. Oh. One show. Oh. I did that, and that has now gone out. And all I did, and anybody, if, if one of my company were here, they aren't, I'm sure, uh, <clears throat> they would tell you that only in one show, and it was a show where they were playing um, badminton, and... And I needed them all to watch a badminton game. Uh, and uh, so I was in their ear saying, fault set. And they'd le look left with fault if they heard it, and right with set. Mm -hmm. uh, and then every once in a while I'd say, good game, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all. I would say, you look spectacular. Mm -hmm. but <laughs> It was one show that I was on for that, in the whole set. In the whole show, if I ever said fault, the entire cast would go like this. So it was a way of choreographing. Mm -hmm. But it was one show. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I feel like Forever. I feel like you just described my ultimate fantasy. <laughs> like just being able to like with the switchboard in the back. Like yeah. ah no 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 you know. <laughs> it's mine too. But they they do um, they do you know I, some performers really enjoy it because we do work a lot from um, other impulses, not mine. From other impulses coming in, mm -hmm. and a lot of the performers really enjoy that because it takes a certain, it's it, it takes a certain onus off of coming up with something and then saying it. They can mm -hmm. give over, in a way, to an impulse that comes mm -hmm. in without judgment and without thought, which is the most interesting thing to watch. It's why films have taken over from theater because you can watch the impulse go across the face of a performer in in film and in theater it's much harder because they've memorized the lines there is no improvisation they've said them a hundred times mm -hmm. but if another impulse comes in and that affects how you say something or how you move uh, that that's a new, it's like you're watching someone th really think on his or her feet at that moment so I, I'm interested in that, and the performers that work with me usually are interested in that too. So there's a lot of improvisation in that. But I'm not there saying, except for fault of the set, I'm not in there saying it. They're getting other <coughs> impulses from other uh, media. I, I assisted Robert Wilson for two years, and uh, I worked with him during the time when he was using the claves. Um, and he, he, he was used using them. a... 
He used these claves, um, and it was to originate when a new section What's of What's a clave? Yeah. Uh, th these sticks, these oh, yeah. uh, Brazilian sticks. And so you, he, they would in initiate each movement section of yeah. a piece. And what he was really interested in was that there was general timing that he, it's like conducting the piece. Yes. And so um, I was the one that did the claves once he was gone and the show was open. And I could change the timing. I knew the timing that he was interested in generally. Yeah. But what he was interested in was that moment where they've completed what they think is the amount of time that it's going to take to do that action. Yes. But then they have more time all of a sudden, and they have to figure out how to fill that time <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> until the next thing comes when they're supposed to start the next section. Yes. Beautiful. So there was something that was improvisatory at the same time as it was taking commands that speaks yes. to what you're talking very about. Very similar. I didn't realize yeah. he worked with it that way. Yeah. 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 And how about for you in terms of this question of uh, at, attending every performance and how much you give notes or change things through the process? I mean, I think for me, it it uh, because you know because the shows are so beyond. Uh, like I, I, my reach is always so far beyond my grasp um, that, like, by the time we're opening, I feel like that's like the beginning of the real workshop process, you know. So I feel like I'm always so far behind that I just have to be there, working as much as possible every night. Um, and then, you know, there's a certain point on tour where I will, which I think is different from you, where I will just stop touring with the show. Like, if I feel like it's just gotten to a point where I don't want to tinker with it anymore, and you know, um, then then I'll I'll, I'll let it go. Yeah, you're ahead of me because I haven't gotten to that place yet. <laughs> but I think also for me, uh, some of that has to do with it, that our shows, uh, the people replace people. So I'm also mm -hmm. dealing with mm -hmm. remaking the show for new people that come in. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a similar thing. I'm always working on it in some you, way. You often rehearse in the afternoons <clears throat> before the evening yeah. shows. Especially <laughs> since we play in so many different theaters and I'm working with a lot of... Um, um, sound scores that are dependent on what the space is like. So mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time orienting the sound score to the spaces we go to and to the how much energy the performers have to give. All, to all fill that particular space. Yeah, was, that was one thing I wanted to talk about too, is I think that the work is often very specific to the space in which it was originally created. So how challenging it is to keep that artistic integrity as you take it into these other places. It's very, very yeah. challenging. But it's also exciting because it brings out new things always. Mm -hmm. How about for you, young Jean? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. It, it's, it, it's not that bad for me, actually. Mm -hmm. How often are you, I don't think you rewrite very much once you've gotten to that place. It's more from a directorial place that you're changing things. Is that so? No, I, I keep changing the writing until, mm -hmm. um, you know, for a while also. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, how has, uh, oh, how, this is, how do, how do you want notes given to you? Whoever gives you guys notes? God, everybody. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> everybody. Like for the, my last show, I have like a hundred page document of notes that I got from audience members, like <laughs> feedback and advice yeah. and yeah. Yeah, we once actually made a piece with the audience. Uh, you know, we'd have them write what they would have rather have seen and the next night we'd try to put that in. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of great. We had a good time with it. But, um, but I get notes from, I, I think, think you, do you mean from the company? From the company or from presenters or other people that you're working with, from colleagues who you value their opinions, from colleagues who you don't value their opinions? 
Oh, that's a hard one. I mean, my company, they're telling me all the time, mm -hmm. that Liz, that's not the right, you're in the wrong scene, you know. Uh, that, that doesn't make sense, because where are we going? They're constantly on me about that, which is great, because I have no, I don't have a good sense of, I don't know what I have, I don't have a good sense of it. <laughs> I have a good sense of not knowing what I have a good sense of. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> at the time that I have, no sense. I have that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. Outside, outside people. I, um, I have certain, I have certain people that I wouldn't let know. Mm -hmm. uh, that that I know what who they are and how they see the work, so I can gauge where I'm going by what they're saying. Um, and I take that, I take that in. But it's always painful for me. I, it's very painful when someone I care about, I can tell they don't like what I'm doing and they don't trust it. It's very difficult. And in terms of outside criticism, uh, I've got a complicated history with that outside criticism. Um, I like to read fantastic reviews of the work. I, I do it like secretly, like you eat, you know, food <coughs> that you're not supposed to be eating. I'll go back, totally. if there's a good review, I'll go back and try to find what it says genius. And, <laughs> and I'll read it over and over and feel really good for a little while and then feel bad because I eat too much of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I, but I don't, uh, because I'm in theater, I don't know about you, because I'm in theater, there isn't much good writing about what I do. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's because people who generally write for theater um, are the leftover people. You know, they're either people who don't feel they can write about anything else, or maybe food. Um, <laughs> or they're people who love it for a reason that I don't love it. So, so the way theater people write about my work, I don't recognize the work at all. So I don't, I don't really, um, don't really, I, I don't read it very much, unless somebody tells me it's a fantastic review, and then I'll go and read it. Otherwise, I just don't read them. And you had about five years where you didn't let critics come, right? No, that's not true either. It's another. Oh, I love this. I'm getting <laughs> myths debunked. <laughs> I went through a period, I can't even remember when, back in the, uh, oh God, it must have been sometime in the, I don't even remember, the 90s, the late 80s, uh, sometime on, oh, we got a, just a terrible, we were doing really well with the piece, I guess, LSD, I think it was, just mm -hmm. the high points, and we got just a terrible review in both the Times and the the Village Voice, I think, you know, just mm -hmm. this was, uh, no one should go see this piece, take the money away. Uh, this was even after, I think this was after Route 1 and I, after the, we did get our money taken away. Mm -hmm. They were still on us, and I realized by that that we were getting good audiences until the review came out, and then everybody stopped coming. So I started to be more careful about um, about that, where I tried to open the piece slowly, like say it's work in progress, and try to keep the reviewers out as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then they get mad and they say, you know, you're playing this all this time, you better get it reviewed. So then I'd say something like, we call up and say, you know, why don't you wait to review this piece because 
Willem isn't going to be in it this week. Uh, he'll be coming back in a month, and you'll want to review it with him. And then we'd say, no, he's not going to be. You know, I used the way because the audiences were coming, we were packed, uh, to be able to develop the piece until it was ready to open. And then I always opened it. Every piece of ours is always opened. It's just I like a long in-town uh, development period in front of an audience. Right, yeah. That's the best way to do it, and it's, it's hard. It's hard to keep people coming. If you get a if you get a bad review, still for me, you get a bad review in New York, people will say they, it doesn't matter to them. It's not true. Mm -hmm. It's just like uh, those the political ads. You know, they say, "Oh, I don't listen to nasty political ads." People do. Mm -hmm. Do you want to jump in on the notes, or do you want to jump in on the criticism issue, um, or both? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I just feel so good about myself and so confident in my work that I don't even care if anybody says anything. But I'm totally kidding. I'm totally done. But <laughs> no, it's the opposite. I, I mean, I absolutely want everybody to absolutely love every single thing that I do. And when they don't, it's devastating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> A I lot think, of devastation up here. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have like a really serious problem with criticism, though, because I think that um, the, it's so low paid that so many, it's so transitory that you used to be able to have writers who were writing for the field for a period of time, and they could write body of work reviews mm -hmm. about artists. Yeah. And there are very few writers that very are doing few. that now because it, there's not enough money to keep people in that field who yes. are trained. And so they go teach or they go dramaturg or they go do something else, but they don't stay as theater critics. Yeah. And it's a really serious, it, I think it's having such an impact on the, the legacy of work going forward as well. Because mm -hmm. I, I think that there, and there are cities where I think there are still interesting dialogues that happen between the makers and the people who are writing about it. But in New York, at least, I feel like it's like yeah. consumer reports, you know, mm -hmm. that's what we're getting, you know. <clears throat> um, yeah, often when I'm reading reviews like in art magazines, I go, oh my God, here's the history, they're following a line of what she's doing. And I go, why don't they do that with us? And I, I wish Manola Dargis would come and write a review, you know, because there are pe people writing in, in uh, movies that are following people's careers yeah. and nobody. And there's something about the theater writing that. Now, that's not always true because um, somebody like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Times guy. Is the time, main Times guy? Brantley? Ben, ben Brantley. Brantley yeah. Ben Brantley has been great. Except that he's not always there, and and he only likes it when we do. Cut this out too, because I don't want Ben to be mad at me. Um, he only likes it when we do things that are experimental. If we do anything, if we attack something, he doesn't like to see us tr do anything traditional. Hmm. So so it's very narrow place that I can get a good review from Ben Brantley. What is traditional? What is you doing something traditional? I'm trying to taking take it by on <laughs> taking on uh, Richard Burton's uh, oh, Hamlet. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. okay. I mean, his maiden thing was you're not Richard Burton, and mm. I think that was pretty self-evident. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't take the next step. Then what are you? He just right. couldn't take that. I see. <clears throat> is there anything more you want to say about criticism? I mean, you know, it's it's hard for me to say because I, like, at a certain level, I feel like press has sort of, you know, that I actually owe a lot to press, you know, both good and bad. 
um, just because I've gotten so much of it because I have an amazing press agent. Like one thing I did early on was when we did the shipment at the kitchen, they had this um, press agent named Blake Zidell, and I just fell in love with him. And so my company has hired him for like every show since then, and he just gets the company so much press. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, in working in theater where it's so – it's just gone. You know, you put all this work into something for years and then it's over and all you have is this crappy DVD that you can't even sell to anybody, you know? And so like, uh, and so, so what I have is I have like a record of press that this happened, you know, that people thought it was important enough to be mad about or to, you know, praise or whatever. And so, so for me, like, I feel like, you know, whatever the state of criticism may be, whatever the quality of criticism, you know, from critic to critic, like, I just feel like, it's it's been so important for me, like being able to get my work done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't have that, but I think you you come up in a different time too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have that. I I I felt like we had a uh, coming up. We had uh, critic uh, people wrote about us for, in art magazines and music, and and we weren't so. Uh, as soon as we got located in later into the you know theater, it narrowed down the kind of things that were written about us. And I think it's why I take a lot of time to um, to make, to work on the DVDs, to try to give a, an idea of what the piece might have been like, to translate it into a video where you get some feeling of what the piece might have been, rather hmm. than just a flat. So there's some record, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's no record of what our pieces are in the press, and on any level, and very few descriptions of the pieces written. Mm. So uh, I, I spent quite a bit of time on that. Well, mm. of course, I also love making uh, video, making film. So, mm-hmm. hmm. how do you? Um, as your companies are both flourishing right now in this time that's really challenging economically, um, particularly for arts organizations. So, what do you think has allowed your work and your companies to continue to succeed in this time? Touring. Mm-hmm. Touring. Touring and um, my age, I think, uh, that thing about you keep working, people are beginning to go, oh, she, they're still making work. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. So uh, some, of the, some of the foundations that <clears throat> uh, wouldn't support us through the more controversial years um, that probably aren't over, actually, uh, they, they've come around to, to uh, fill in because we, we don't get much touring in the United States. Um, we do most of our touring in, in Europe and Asia. So Why do you think that is? Is that economic? Because the U.S. Uh, presenters yeah. are cheaper. I, I, mean, I, I tend to be here. Yeah. I tend to think that it's that uh, they don't like me because um, they don't like our, our work uh, out in the Midwest and hmm. those places. Um, they used to take us because I think they felt they had to. It was the Worcester group, but... I don't think they like our work out there in the new ones. <clears throat> so we really tour just, we're usually asked only to um, the West Coast, mm-hmm. which we love. Uh, LA is a great mm-hmm. audience for us. But it may be that they, we ask for specific things, you know, in terms of how the size of the theater, we can't play to more than 350 people. I remember a couple of um, well known so called producers out there who, you know, put out the word that I was an elitist because I only wanted 350 people in the theater. Mm-hmm. There's a bad feeling in the Midwest, according to me, there's a bad feeling toward us as an elitist group that hmm. 
somehow, and I don't know, I guess I'm paranoid. I've never felt I was paranoid, so I'm not sure. <laughs> but we don't, uh, we don't tour here. And Young Jean, you tour both in the States and, and uh, so for you, how do you find the difference between the States touring or the European touring? Well, it's just, it's less money in the States. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. always a struggle. You know, we lose money a lot of the time. And, you know, at this point... Um, I think that might be partially what, because we always bring a big company and I, I yeah. think some of the bad feeling might be coming that they're angry that we're asking so much money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that we don't need to go there for the low money. We can go to Europe. Mm-hmm. That might be... Yes, go ahead. Typically trying to figure out why the Midwest doesn't like me. Well, I... I <laughs> Well, based on the based on the numbers my company is dealing with, I I have no idea how a, a U.S. theater would be able to. I mean, that would actually make me mad if a U.S. theater could afford to bring you, and this is what they're offering me. Then like I'd just okay, be like, okay. screw you, I'm not so going. You, you know. Are, yeah. So yeah, it's it's uh, uh, yeah, I don't think they can afford you, and they they can barely afford my company. You know. So that's all the technical um, setup yeah. for us is totally big. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the, the thing about making having your own space because we developed that because we could keep all of our stuff, set stuff and make it there. Mm-hmm. How has seeing international work influenced your work or has it? Say that again. International work, has it influenced your own work? Do you feel Yeah, terrifically. Mm-hmm. Terrifically. I, I think it, the, the, the big thing for me is that the, the, um, the American theater was so oriented toward what the words were that when I went to Europe and saw some of the, um, early on saw some of the big companies in Germany and France um, who were working more physically, uh, uh, I was, I wanted to find a way to have a physical vocabulary that was as strong as the uh, oral vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that wasn't happening in New York on the stage. You, you know, there's this. And there's this, and there's, you know, this. There's a certain vocabulary of American theater. It's not so much anymore because of the influence coming mm-hmm. in from Europe. But at the time I was, that was it. I want this done, and mm. I feel so angry. <laughs> theatrical things that I just wanted to bypass and find a film vocabulary that, mm-hmm. so your body was doing something different than what you were saying. Mm-hmm. That your body was ahead of you, or you were ahead of that, or they weren't—you weren't emphasizing everything with emphatic gestures. And that was a big influence. I saw ways of doing that that weren't dance uh, in some of the um, European countries, and they looked at our work and saw um, saw us as something exciting and new for them, and that was a big spur for us because we were being, you know, our money was being taken away, we were treated like shit here, mm-hmm. so that was really nice to go there and to be embraced in the early work there. I feel like Europe, you know, like Europeans just care about art in they a way that, yeah, they and care they care about, about theater. theater and it's in like, a way that it is an art. Yeah, and they offer you sort of like, you know, it's, it's uh Everything feels more humane over there when I go over there. You know, like it's it's the cafes after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't. 
uh, I haven't seen a ton of international work because when I go on tour, it's this awful thing where the only night I can see a show is the night we get there and I have jet lag, so I always fall asleep. Um, uh, uh, But, but, um, uh, you know, forced entertainment, um, there's a Dutch company called Cassis that I like a lot. And, um, uh, yeah, and I feel like European theater has had a lot of influence on New York theater, you know, the New York theater that I like, and then that sort of trickled down to me. Let's talk to these guys. Can we have some lights up so we can see you better? Oh, okay. Then we'll just try to see you. Um, any, yes. Hi. Um, I think it's really interesting uh, how you know some people you mentioned, Rob Wilson, uh, William Forsyth. Uh, all these people are clearly more appreciated in outside of America, and and most of Europe, I'm sure, to some extent. And uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I, I had this sort of uh, backboard backstage tour at Three-Legged Dog, and met Kevin Cunningham, who mourned sort of this death of uh, downtown New York theater scene where nobody comes to see that kind of work anymore, to hear they're, they're over Berlin. And I just want to know um, if you share that sentiment uh, that you've given up your... No. No. I think uh, I think that there was a time for me when the work, the downtown work, was a little went under. I think it was around t- a time when there was all these monologues. There were too many monologues. <laughs> uh, but I I sense that there are things really happening a lot. Uh, I I see and hear about more uh, downtown theater than ever now. I, I don't. I don't agree with that. I think it's alive and well. Yeah, I feel the same way. Whenever I go, like it's packed, you know. Yeah, like I, yeah, that hasn't been my impression. I agree. I don't know where that's coming from. I do think it's really challenging how expensive New York's gotten, and for artists who are starting out, that they're having to, you know, people. When I started working, I was able to live in Manhattan and walk to and from where I was going, and that was a much easier way to live my life as an artist. And my rent wasn't two thousand or three thousand dollars a month. So I think there's a real challenge for young artists coming to New York. And I think we are losing some that they're choosing to go to Asheville, North Carolina, or to Austin, Texas, where there's great happening art scenes and a whole range of experimentation. I think it's a challenge that New York has to figure out how to overcome to keep the energy of young artists. But I think that the downtown scene is really alive right now. I think there's hundreds of theaters and um, there's tons of stuff going on. And I, you know, I, this is maybe just my thing, but this money thing like really bugs me. Like I, you know, when I moved here, I mean, I guess it was like nine years ago. So maybe things are, you know, really different now, but even now, like I don't live expensively, like my rent's not that hot, you know, like I, it's, um, uh, I, you know, the, the one, the one thing that I will say is people coming here with student debt. Like right. that is yes. that that's the killer, and I and I didn't have that because I always went to public schools. But like I I do think that okay, your student debt aside, like right. it is possible to live cheaply here. You know, mm-hmm. like you just aren't aren't gonna live this sort of middle class lifestyle that you right. might feel entitled to. You know, yeah. like so I I, I would disagree yeah. that you can't come here and do no, that. No, I you definitely know? think you can. I just think that it's challenging. Yeah, in it's a true. different way. But I do think that's true about expectation. Um, we did a series of interviews of people, and a lot of uh, people in their forties and fifties talked about how their 20-year-old kids had an expectation that they would automatically have the life that their parents had, where the parents built to that life. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so why is it that there is that expectation that you get it right away Mm -hmm. instead of you have to earn it, right? Um, Other questions? 
My question is, um, I'm from Kazakhstan. So I came here um, four years ago. I'm an actress from Actress Theater Drama School. And I, as soon as we finished recently, I said to our like guys in Actress Studio, why don't we do shows? We have so many things. We have talented people. We have directors. We have playwrights. Let's do shows. So I found money. I found like crew, everything. And then we had three plays that, we, that I was going to produce. And then nothing worked out. Like actors started to say like, oh, we don't know, maybe some other things. Directors like were just like silent. And playwrights just started to suffer. Like, I mean, some people like likes to suffer. And I wonder why, <laughs> seriously. And um, I wonder how, how do you girls um, come up with the show and continue to produce or continue to write or like, I don't know how to articulate this question, but like, how, do you, how, you, how are you not suffering and... Um, Did you say <laughs> separating? How are you not suffering? Suffering, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Just succeeding. Oh. How are we not suffering? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel like it's nothing but suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, or else I wouldn't be doing it. But I, I, don't know. I, I see, you know what? I actually see, you know, because I was talking about how I'm not like the mastermind genius puppet master type of director. Like, I feel like a big part of what my job is that that is something that I'm good at is I am good at keeping the team excited. You know, I feel like that's like a huge part huge. of my job is just you know, making everybody, and, and, and if you can do that, if you can get people to understand that their contribution is valuable, that they're not just your puppet, and that yeah. they're going to get to be a part of something cool, like, they will do so much more work for, like, they will go so far above and beyond, and it won't be about, you know, like, how much you're paying them, yes. and, and I feel like that, that's a skill that, um, it's like a skill, it's you know? It's a skill. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. And it, it just means for you that you haven't found that person that can do that mm -hmm. in the group. Well, I guess I, I, I will be that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ahead, then you, if you were, though, you wouldn't be even, you wouldn't be here, probably. No. I mean, I could, I could give you, like, one pointer, which is, like, you know, one, one thing is if, if somebody feels that you recognize their value, that is a great way to keep them on board because it's like it's a world in which you know you may have a lot to offer but even if people see that they won't acknowledge it or recognize it and if somebody feels like you see that in them then they will like they will want to keep uh helping you yeah and uh, for me I'm, I'm not known to be uh, you know that kind of nurturing uh, person. <laughs> oh, okay, what have you heard? <laughs> but but uh, I do, I do like to make a world, and I see the world, and if people want to come into that world, they want to come, I welcome them. Mm -hmm. So uh, sometimes I don't always see people, uh, you know, I, I don't nurture in that way, but I try to make a space in that world that people will want to be in, uh, and and I think that's just something that it is absolutely necessary for for uh, theater. You have to have some vision that someone wants to come with, even uh, and even if I don't see the person, if the person can enjoy the world that everybody sees. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not nurturing.
That's all I have to say. But, but I do make worlds that, that, are, that can be nurturing. The world can be nurturing. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, I actually, like, so, um, you know, when I had those meetings with you, because we're, we're, we're talking about doing a, a collaboration, um, and uh, when you invited me into those meetings, mm-hmm. like, that's, you totally did that. Like, you created that, that feeling. And it was, but it was like, it was, <laughs> yeah, no, it was really, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, very well together. yeah, yeah, and it was, and it reminded me, and the, the feeling that you gave me was not a feeling of like, oh, Liz is going to be my mommy. You know, it wasn't that nurturing vibe. It was sort of, there's like this, this, there was this rap song in the 90s called Game Recognize Game. And that was like the feeling that I got, that I got, you know, and it was so flattering of sort of like, you know, like I have game, you have game, like, yeah. you know. What are you guys thinking of collaborating on? Do you, uh, I'm not saying. You're not saying? It's a secret. It's a secret. It's a secret. Awesome. It'll be coming. Okay. Yes. Um, you mentioned Germany having a large vocabulary as opposed to an oral vocabulary here. Would you expand on that? Who is that speaking? I'm sorry. Right here. In front of oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Say that again. I have an ear infection that I oh, get here. You mentioned Germany having a larger vocabulary. Uh, well, in, in the German theater they have, they've had over a years when we were just standing in, you know, next to couches, sitting <laughs> <laughs> out at least, you know, drinking martinis on stage. Uh, uh, they, they were working on an expressionist uh, ideas about how to use the body in, uh, their, in their normal theater. And they had companies, so they could develop these ideas as expressionist ideas. Um, uh, so I think that's what I'm talking about. It's a different training. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, this is for Elizabeth. Uh, you've talked a lot about your um, your your process as your um, once you begin uh, rehearsing. Could you share directorially a little bit about your process before rehearsal, like your personal preparation that you do leading up to the beginning of the rehearsal process? Well, I like to read the Times in the morning. (laughs) I like to, I don't do the crossword on Monday and Tuesday because I've gotten too good for it. (laughs) Wednesday's easy, Thursday's a little harder, Friday I'm late for rehearsal because I'm really working. And that's about it. I just go there and hope that my company is going to be there. That what somebody's going to say, we're working on now. I even have people help me say, somebody's going to say, let's work on this scene because these are the only people that can be here because the other people are out trying to make a living. And I just go in and play. I, there's no real preparation. I don't read the script ever outside of the... Theater. I never go home and study the script except if I want to do something visually with it. Um, I try not to think about it outside. I can't help it. I do think about it all the time, but I try not to. Because anything I think about outside of the space, usually when I bring it in, it doesn't work because it's just from my own mind and it's not that mind that mind that is the performance mind, the whole space. 
Thank you. Oh, well, I think we're actually, we actually need to wrap up. That was a quick, quick hour, 15 minutes. So thank you all for coming, and thank you to Kristen Martin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.